Okay, we're continuing together today our study in chapter 30 of our Confession of Faith on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And we um, have been considering together the institution of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 1. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about the names and the titles uh, that are given to uh, the Lord's Supper. And we saw that there were eight of them, four of them which were ecclesiastical titles and four of them which were biblical titles, all of them conveyed really important truth about um, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Uh, But now today we want to move on to the institution of the Supper, and that's also in paragraph 1. It says, The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him the same night wherein He was betrayed. So what we want to do is spend some time talking about uh, why Jesus instituted this supper, where he instituted the supper, how he instituted the supper, and what that tells us about the supper. You can learn a great deal about things uh, if you study their origin. Where did this come from? And so when we understand where the Lord's Supper came from, Uh, it gives us a great deal of understanding about its meaning and significance. So what we're going to do then is we're just going to go back and we're going to look at the original institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to ask ourselves where it came from. And the principle that we want to see is this. The Lord's Supper is rooted in, it fulfills, and it transforms the Old Testament Passover. Okay? And I selected all those words carefully. The Lord's Supper is rooted in the Old Testament Passover. It fulfills the Old Testament Passover. And it transforms the Old Testament Passover. So if we're ever going to understand the Lord's Supper, we've got to understand the Passover. Because that's what it's rooted in. That's what it fulfills. And that's what it transforms. All right, so let's open our Bibles then to Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, and we're going to look together at verses 1 through 20. Now, I want you to notice the references to the Passover, all right, and We're going to go back and we're going to read the Passover story as well. Uh, So we'll get us all up to speed on that. But notice uh, the references to the Passover um, as the background to the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, 1 to 20. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, that is Jesus, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the presence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Notice they mention it again. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? 
And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. You shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, have you noticed the word Passover, 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 Passover keeps occurring? Okay, that's important. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. Verse 13, And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any, <clears throat> I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, remember Eucharisto, Eucharist, giving thanks. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said unto them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So <clears throat> what we have here then is the, the record of uh, the fact that it was in the context of the Passover and the celebration of the Passover that the Lord's Supper was instituted. Now, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the Passover? Well, the Passover was a feast that the Jews celebrated, which had its beginning with the exodus from Egypt under Moses. Children of Israel were in bondage 400 years in Egypt under Pharaoh. Moses came, and you remember that he did the ten plagues against Pharaoh and against the nation of Egypt so that the children of Israel would be let go. And the last and final plague, the tenth plague, was the death of all of the firstborn of all of those in Egypt except for the firstborn that the death angel passed over. And the reason why the death angel passed over the firstborn of the Jews and didn't pass over, but rather killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians was because the Jews sacrificed a lamb and they took the blood from the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. And when the death angel came to kill all the firstborn children, if he saw blood on the doorposts of the house, he passed over that house and went to the next one where there wasn't any blood and he went in there and he killed the firstborn child. So every firstborn child, if, if you're the firstborn in your family, you would have been dead if you were not um, passed over by the death angel. Okay. So um, let's turn then to Exodus 12 and we're going to read all about that. Okay. Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read 51 verses, okay? Exodus 12, 1 to 51. Um, we're going to read together the entire chapter. <clears throat> Exodus 12, 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying... Verse 2, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. 
And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it. According to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating shall you make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. So they're going to kill this thing. They're going to take the blood and they're going to strike it on the right post and the left post and the top um, of the door. Okay. Um, And uh, verse eight, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, with the pertinences thereof. You shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, that which remaineth of it until the morning shall you burn with fire. And in this fashion shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So it's like, you know, you're all dressed and ready to go out the door, and you got your staff in your hand, and you're eating like this, like you're ready to go out the door. Okay? Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Thus the name pass over. Okay, verse 14, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast for an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Pretty severe penalty. No leaven. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether you be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations, you shall eat unleavened bread. Is God pretty serious about not having any leaven? He's pretty serious. Okay. Symbolism matters. Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop. That's kind of like a bunch of grass. Okay. If you grab the handful of grass and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. In other words, you stay inside the house where the blood is covering the doorway. 
Verse 25, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. It shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he has promised that you shall keep this service. And it will come to pass when your children shall say to you, What mean you by this service? That you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead." And he called Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took, by the way, you don't get in a spitting match with God and win. Okay. If Pharaoh wasn't going to do what God wanted to do, God was going to increase the pressure until he finally collapsed. And so it doesn't pay to fight with God. Verse 34. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and clothing. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them in flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes out of their dough, which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night much to be observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and to Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. That's why we don't have unsaved people eating the Lord's Supper. No strangers to the Lord. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, that is, when they have the mark of the covenant on them, then he shall eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. That's going to be significant. When you, when you sacrifice this lamb, you don't break the bones to get the marrow out. Don't break the bones. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then 
let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus did the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by armies. Well, that's the story. That's the Passover. Okay? Very interesting story. Great display of the power of God. Loaded with significance, with theological significance. Okay? Now, there were two aspects to the Passover. When the Jews then, subsequent to this, celebrated the Passover, there were two aspects to that Passover. And let's turn to Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8, and we'll see what they are. We're just laying background here for the Lord's Supper. So let's turn to Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 4 through 8. Leviticus 23, 4 through 8, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. When is the Lord's Passover? 14th of Nisan, which is the first month. Okay. Verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. You shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. All right? So on the 14th day, you have the Passover, and then from the 15th day to the 21st day, you have this feast. At the end of each, uh, there's this holy convocation. So there's the Passover, then the first day of the Passover feast, which is a holy convocation, and then you go seven days, and the last day is also a holy convocation. Okay? So there was a sacrificial and symbolic meal on the 14th, which is properly called Passover or the 14th of Nisan. And then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed for seven days. Now, sometimes this whole time, both the 14th day and the 15th to the 21st day, sometimes the whole time is lumped together and called the Passover, the whole thing, the Passover. And sometimes they're distinguished between the first day being called the Passover And then the next seven days being called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you understand that, it takes the confusion out of some of the narratives about the Passover in the New Testament. Because in John 19, for example, it's like, you know, they celebrated the Passover and then the Pharisees says, you know, we're going to celebrate the Passover. And it's like, well, what? You know, they said they did and yet they still have to. That's why. Okay. Because sometimes the whole time is lumped together to be called the Passover, and sometimes they're distinguished between the first day being called the Passover and the other seven days being called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, it was the Passover proper, 14th Nisan. It was this sacrificial and symbolic meal that was done on that day 
that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating at the Lord's Supper. It wasn't the seven-day feast. It was the first day when they had the symbolic meal and, um, and celebrated the Passover. That's when they had the Passover lamb and they roasted it and ate it and didn't break any bones and, uh, and all those things. The bitter herbs, all of that was all done then. Okay? Now, the symbolic significance of the Passover is very profound and the New Testament recognizes that. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As I said, you know, when we read Exodus 12, that the passage is loaded with symbolic and theological significance, and now we're going to start to see what some of that is. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says this, well, we'll start out at verse, let's start out at verse 1. It's commonly reported there's fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. So there's real sin in the congregation. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. Should exercise church discipline, instead they were glorying in their tolerance. Verse 3, for verily I as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when you gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Now, now we get into the leaven, all right? Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So what's leaven symbolic of here in this context? Sin, okay? And so you put a little bit of yeast in a big lump of dough, and pretty soon the yeast just permeates the whole lump, right? Any of you women who cook know that, and that's why it rises, okay? And so he's saying if you, if you tolerate a little bit of sin in the congregation, pretty soon that sin spreads, and everybody's practicing it because it must be okay, and um, it permeates the whole congregation. Verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven. That is, purge out the sin, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. So the unleavened bread was a picture of purity, freedom from sin. All right? It's real clear. Now notice, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now Paul is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 is a foreshadowing, a picture and a type of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now notice verse 8. Therefore let us keep the feast. Now what feast could he possibly be talking about? He has to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Because the Passover feast isn't celebrated anymore by Christians. It's done away with the Old Covenant. We're way into the New Covenant now by the time 1 Corinthians has been written by several decades. Okay? And so the feast he's talking about is the Lord's Supper. He's saying, let us therefore keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's why it's still critical that we used unleavened bread in our Lord's Supper observation. Because the significance of leaven hasn't passed away. Now, some of the stuff about um, the Passover has passed away, and we're going to talk about that. But the significance of unleavened bread has not passed away. We still need to be using it. Okay? Anyway, the symbolic significance of the Passover is very profound, and this passage tells us that the Passover ceremony is symbolic of the spiritual realities of Christ and of sin. So, Israel in Egypt, Israel in bondage in Egypt represented us in bondage to sin. Pharaoh represented Satan's dominion over us. The death angel was representative of the one who brings God's righteous judgment on the wicked. And the sacrificial lamb, of course, is symbolic of Jesus Christ. In John 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist said regarding Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this lamb that was sacrificed in the Passover was not only a lamb whose blood shielded the people from the judgment and wrath of God, just like Jesus' blood shields us from the judgment and wrath of God, but this lamb was also without blemish, signifying his perfection and his holiness, or the perfection and the holiness of Jesus. This lamb was killed and roasted, signifying the fire of God's wrath and the death he must endure on the cross for us. Remember it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that our God is a consuming fire. And it was that fiery wrath and judgment that was poured out on Jesus. And Jesus wasn't boiled. Uh, He was burned. And so the lamb was burned. Okay, Jesus endured uh, the flames of hell for us. And so that lamb being roasted was, was, was a picture of, of, of the fires of hell and the flames of God's wrath being on the innocent victim, the lamb who, who typified Jesus Christ. And you remember it said in verse 46 of Exodus 12, not a bone was to be broken. And, and none of Christ's bones were broken. We looked uh, last Sunday at John 19.36 where it said that... Um, when the soldiers came to break the bones, the leg bones of those who were crucified, uh, they broke the bones of one thief and they broke the bones of the other thief. But when they came to Jesus, he was dead already. And the guy shoved a spear into Jesus' side to make sure he was dead. And, and all this was done, it said that it might be fulfilled that not a bone of him would be broken. Okay. So once again, God saw to it that Jesus perfectly carried out the, 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 the anti-type of the Passover lamb, and not a bone of that lamb was to be broken. And we also see that the blood of the lamb protected the people from judgment. And of course, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so the blood of the lamb had to be shed right? When the lamb was killed. And then the blood of the lamb had to be applied. It had to be applied to the doorposts. And in the same way, Jesus shed his blood for us, but that blood has to be applied to our souls individually, which occurs when we repent and believe so that we can be saved. 
And then, of course, the flesh of the lamb was supposed to be eaten. And so we must individually and personally partake of Jesus Christ, receive him into our very lives so that he is in us and we are in him. And of course, the Lord's Supper, when we symbolically eat, is of course parallel with the eating of the lamb um, in the Passover. Now, the bitter herbs that God told them to eat in Exodus chapter 12 were there to remind the Jews of the bitterness of sin and the bitterness of the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 1.14, it says Pharaoh made their lives bitter with bondage. And so they ate these bitter herbs in order to remind them of what it used to be like to be in sin and to be in bondage uh, to that bitterness of uh, dominion by this satanic uh, representative of Pharaoh. And then, of course, there was the unleavened bread. And leaven is almost without exception in the scripture used as a symbol of sin and wickedness. Sin is to be rejected and removed from the life of the Christian. It's to be searched out and purged from the home and from the life. God said, you're not supposed to find it anywhere in the house. And so it's symbolic of the fact that when Christ cleanses us from sin, there is no sin found on our record. And of course, in our own lives, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of the things it should cause us to do is to search our moral house and uh, cast out any sin that, that is, is in that house. So we see that all of this is symbolic of deliverance from the bondage and the penalty of sin through the substitutionary sacrifice of an innocent victim. And so it was in the context of this Passover meal that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. And since he and the sacrifice he was to make were the fulfillment of all that was symbolized and foreshadowed in the Passover, then it's entirely fitting that this ceremony should be transformed into and replaced by the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the fulfillment in every respect of the Passover and therefore he takes the Passover and transforms it. And he did so by taking the unleavened bread of the meal and the cup of wine at the meal and he gave them a new significance and a new meaning. They were now to symbolize his body and his blood in the accomplishment of the new covenant. Jesus was the true Lamb of God, whose life was given and whose blood was shed for the deliverance of his people from their sins. And so it was in the midst of this Passover meal that he began to transform its makeup and its meaning and to declare its new significance. See, these Jews had practiced this, observed this Passover many, many times in their lifetimes. Let's say they were adults. Let's say they were all 33 years old like Jesus was at this point in time. They'd celebrate this thing 33 times. They knew about all the rituals, all the practices, all the significances. And so what Jesus does in the midst of this meal, he begins to transform the makeup of the meal and the meaning of the meal and declare its new significance. The unleavened bread was now consecrated to a new use and a new meaning. It now represented the body of Christ. The wine 
which had no biblically required presence at the Passover. We don't see anything about wine anywhere in Exodus 12. Even though it was customarily present, it was they had wine before the meal and they had wine after the meal. Um, we don't see anything about wine in Exodus 12, but apparently for some reason it was incorporated. Typically when you eat, you drink, and so there must have been wine there. Um, it must have been... Uh, non-alcoholic wine. Do you know why? No yeast. No leaven. In order to make alcohol, you've got to have three things. Four things. You've got to have water. You've got to have sugar. You've got to have leaven or yeast. And you've got to have the right temperature. And so, um, just like they were eating their bread in haste and their bread didn't have time to become leaven and rise and all that stuff, I think what they had was fresh grape juice, okay? And that's one reason why we don't feel like it's necessary to use alcoholic wine in the Lord's Supper. Because the alcohol is not the essence of the symbol. The crushed grape is the essence of the symbol. In the bread, leaven, or the lack thereof, is the of the essence of the symbol that the lamb was sinless and spotless. Okay, that's why we insist on unleavened bread. That's why we don't insist on alcoholic wine. But leaving that all aside, the wine was introduced as a new and now necessary element with a central meaning and significance in that it symbolizes the blood of Christ. So now the unleavened bread has a new meaning. It symbolizes the body of Christ. Now the wine is introduced and required. It has a symbolic meaning of the blood of Christ. The lamb was eliminated. The lamb was eliminated because its typology was fulfilled. No further sacrifice would be necessary. That's why at our new Passover meal called the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, there's no lamb because Jesus is the lamb. Okay, And the bitter herbs were also eliminated because the bitterness of sin and its bondage were conquered. The Son of Man has set us free and we are free indeed. The dominion of sin has been broken. We're now under a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. We're not under the bitter yoke and burden of Pharaoh, namely Satan, anymore. And so <clears throat> some elements were retained, some were eliminated, and some of them were transformed into having new meanings. And so when we look at the Lord's Supper and see that it was rooted in the Passover, it's the fulfillment of the Passover, and it transforms the Passover in terms of its meaning, it helps us to grasp a lot of the significance of what is being done and what is being said by the symbolism and the practice that we engage in. So when we're at the Lord's Supper, it's entirely proper to look at these elements in light of the Passover and what happened there and to realize Jesus delivered us from the death angel. He was the sacrifice that endured the fire of God to, uh, and shed his blood to save us from that Passover. That blood has to be applied to our lives um, and, uh, and, and he's the one who has liberated us from uh, Pharaoh, from Satan. 
and uh, has eliminated the bitterness of that bondage uh, and uh, the bitterness of suffering under uh, the wrath of God for sin. And uh, we now enjoy um, the bread and the wine as, as, as things that are life-giving and symbolic of the one who gave us life. So this is the genesis then of the Lord's Supper. And when our confession says it was instituted by him on the same night in which he was betrayed, that institution grew out of the Passover and understanding the Passover helps us to understand uh, the Lord's Supper. Okay, are there any questions? Roy. What you just wrapped up with at the very end there is what I see in 5, 6 through 8. But when you was originally in 5, 6 through 8, and you was talking about that, you started um, you started off with, uh, on 6 it says, um, Your glory is not good. Know you not that a little leaven, or a little leaven, Left the whole lump, and we all agreed that we referred to that as sin. Yeah. And when he was talking about that, I was getting the impression when he was talking about it, he was referring to that all through that passage was talking about leavened bread and unleavened bread. To me, all through that passage, he was talking about sin. Correct. So I guess I was confused on why he was. Okay. I, I guess the words leaven are there, but what the passage talks about is sin. I mean. That's correct. Leaven is a picture of sin. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. And so if we're going to have a pure congregation, we can't have any leaven in the congregation. We can't have any sin, right? Okay. So then verse, eight, verse 7 then takes that idea of leaven being a picture of sin in the congregation. And then in verse 7 it says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, which is the Lord's Supper, not with old leaven, that is, not with the sin of the old life, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, that's current sins, but with the unleavened, and then it says bread in italics there, of sincerity and truth. And so what he's saying is that when we gather together as an assembly and we celebrate the feast, and the reason why they put bread there in italics, even though it isn't there in the original, is because they recognize the word feast was a reference to the Lord's Supper. Okay. And because, I mean, what feast does the New Covenant Church have? Just one. The Lord's Supper, that's it. That's our feast. Okay? So, what, what I did then is, is I took the idea of unleavened bread being a symbol of sin, and I, I, I said that Paul also then took that metaphor and drew it into the feast, which is the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, let us practice the Lord's Supper without the leaven of sin in that ceremony. So what they were doing, Roy, is they were practicing the Lord's Supper in the church at Corinth with who? 
uh, they had leaven. This guy who was who was committing incest. Okay, he was there celebrating the Lord's Supper with him. Jude talks about these people being spots in your feast of charity. Okay. And, and what he's saying is people who are living in willful, open, blatant, defiant sin are not to be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper with you. So if, if those people are a picture of leaven and were to celebrate the feast with the unleavened body of Christ, that is, the body of Christ is not living in willful, open, defiant, blatant sin, then it stands to reason that when he's referring here to the unleavened bread, it would not only apply to the congregation, but also to the element itself to carry the symbolism through. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not. I think you are. I was just... Uh, in your uh, explanation, it, I guess when I read this, it was just clear to me as, as we were referring to sin, and, and you was trying to explain the unleavened and the relationship to it, and I guess I wasn't getting the past the fact that it, it's explaining sin to me. It is. You're right. But it explains more than that in that <clears throat> the unleavened bread is a symbol of the sinlessness of Christ. See, if leaven is a symbol of sin and the bread is the symbol of Christ's body, then we wouldn't put a symbol of sin into the symbol of Christ's body, would we? Okay. And so... You know, he specifically refers to the Lord's Supper in verse 8 when he says, let us keep the feast. He's saying, let us celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not with old sin, neither with current sin, but with the purity of sincerity and truth. Okay? D -d 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 Does that make sense? Does that following out your line of reasoning? Well... It says, therefore, let us keep the feast. Uh, what did the, the feast, and just before that, it's referring to Christ. Yep. We're talking about the purity of Christ. Right. And the righteousness of Christ. Right. And so, therefore, let us keep the righteousness of Christ and not withhold to the old sin. Yep. Uh, neither the sin of now and, and, and whatnot. And then... You know, even though it's saying the feast, the feast is a representation or a symbol. Right. So, so what you're saying is, is that it, what I understand you to be saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that <clears throat> you don't see any necessary connection between keeping the feast and using unleavened bread to do so. You're saying the unleavened bread doesn't have any reference to the feast. It only has reference to the elimination of sin from the congregation. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I would say whenever you're starting to reach out there and say that the, the feast, I guess to me looking at it saying the feast represents the Lord's Supper, um, you could say that, but it just referred to Christ was the Passover, and, and what are we, we're still talking about sin, right? Right. And, and, and righteousness. And so basically, we want to, to grab on to Christ's righteousness. Right. We want to push away sin. And, and that's the direction we're going. And, and to bring in 
the Lord's Supper seems foreign. Well, it just seems like it, it, it isn't that it's totally not there, but it just seems like you're reaching out there a little ways to get hold of it. Where, I mean, obviously there's other places in Scripture where it does clearly refer to the Lord's Supper. And right. So we can read those into yeah. Yeah, the reason why I'm reading the Lord's Supper into this is it clearly refers to Christ our Passover, okay? And it was at the Passover that the Lord's Supper was instituted. And then it says, let us keep the feast. And the question is, what feast do Christians keep? And the answer is, the only feast that Christians ever keep is the Lord's Supper. So the combination of the reference to the Passover and the statement about the feast together seemed to me to point very clearly to the Lord's Supper. And what he's saying is that you can't celebrate the Lord's Supper with this leaven in your congregation. You've got to purge out this sinful person by excommunication from your congregation before you can keep the Lord's Supper because having him there is contradictory to the purity uh, that is supposed to exist in the congregation and that is symbolized in the Lord's Supper and the unleavened nature of, uh, of Christ's own person that is represented in the bread. So that, that's the line of reasoning. You know, the word Passover and the word feast seem to point pretty strongly to the Lord's Supper because that's when it was implemented and that's what it is. Which is fine, and I agree with that. I just, I, to me, you're still taking the meaning away from, therefore, let us, let us keep the feast, let us keep the righteousness. We're, we're trying to purge out sin. We're trying to get rid of sin. Let's reach for righteousness and get rid of the sin. Right. And that, that's the primary thrust of what he's saying. That is the primary thrust. So. It, 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 it's just that. He's then alludes to the Lord's Supper in relationship to that primary thrust. Basically, when they're taking the Lord's Supper. Right. Um, there's there's another there's a couple of parallel passages. There's one in First uh, Peter. Pardon me, Second Peter. Chapter 2, and verse 13. <clears throat> Speaking of these wicked, wicked people, all right, these false teachers, Second Peter 2.13. And they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, etc. So he's talking about they're there feasting with you at the Lord's Supper. Now there's another passage in the book of Jude, verse 12. We'll start out at verse 11. He's talking about these wicked brute beasts. He says in verse 11 of Jude, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds are they without water, etc. And so the idea that 
you know, their feasting with the Christians is, is clearly a reference to their celebration of the Lord's Supper together. So that's where the idea of the feast comes in. Okay, well, we're out of time, big time. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in giving us your word and for giving us this wonderful ordinance. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to rightly understand it and rightly participate in it. And Father, we are exceedingly grateful for the richness of its meaning and significance and the one it represents and what he accomplished on our behalf. Bless, Lord, your word to our hearts and minds. Grant us full understanding of its meaning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.